This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. This is Joris Peels with another edition of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. How you doing, Max? Hey, I'm good. How are you doing today, Joris? I'm well, I'm well. How are you? I'm good. It's a beautiful fall day here in New York City. How's, how's Spain? Spain is good, <laughs> but I'm wearing long pants. for like. I'm, this is the first time I'm wearing shorts uh, since like you know since the beginning of the year, so I'm a bit kind of sad. Oh, I'm not, so I have to wear jeans now, so, <laughs> so I don't know what to do. And I have to like buy, like they have the shoes on instead of slippers, so it's a bit kind of an adjustment. The sacrifices we make. Who's yeah, on exactly. the 3D pod today? <laughs> so today, uh, today we've got Joe Ellison uh, on the show today. I'm really excited about this because like we've had 3D printing dinos, like this AMUG dinos, and now we have like a 3D printing fern. <laughs> uh, Joe, <laughs> Joe was started got started in 3D printing in 1987. Uh, so literally, there's like not that many people that were active in 3D printing uh, uh, before Joe got involved. And of course, Chuck Hall at 3D Systems, and well, that was the only gig in town at the time, just about. So so. Joe then worked at 3D Systems uh, from 1987 to 1991. Uh, and then for 23 years, he, he worked for Solid Concepts. And Solid Concepts was a pioneering service bureau that got into a lot of uh, firsts and a lot of industries first in doing you know, prototyping, later on manufacturing. Uh, and then uh, he sold Solid Concepts to Stratasys. He led then Stratasys Direct. And then later, uh, he, he was kind of an investor, kind of floating around there until he found a new gig. And that new gig is uh, to be the CEO of Evolve Additive. And you'll remember that Evolve Additive, we've had Steve on uh, the CEO, who's now transitioned to a CTO role. And uh, Joe is now here to replace him. So we're super happy to have Joe here today. Hi, guys. Uh, George, thanks for such a nice introduction. And uh Thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, so Deli, like, so when you joined 3D Systems in in 1987, like, how many people were there already? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, right. Like, so there are four people, five people. <laughs> what does that look like? Actually, actually, there were more than that. I think there was about uh, 35. I only know that because my employee number was like number 35 or something. Okay. Right. Okay. I, I think oh. That was Oh, movie. so you're not that much of a pioneer then. <laughs> no. There are 35 no. other people in front of you. <laughs> yeah. Actually, um, the technology was developed enough when I got there yeah. that I was in the CAD CAM industry. I don't know if you guys go back this far, but uh, oh. the, big, the big conference and trade show in CAD CAM back then was yeah. uh, called AutoFact. And I think it was in Cobo Hall. And it, it was back in the days when they had these huge booths. But downstairs, there was all these 10 by 10 uh, booth areas. And uh, somebody told me, you got to go downstairs and look at this. And I went down there and 3D Systems was there in a 10 by 10 with this uh, machine that was pretending to work. You know, it, 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 they didn't bring all the stuff and set it up there and work. And basically, it was a 3D printer. And I went home and I called my headhunter and I said, get me a job there. And about three weeks later, I was, I was working at 3D Systems. Wow. And what did you do for them? What did you do for them in the beginning? Well, they brought me in as their first applications engineer. Pretty quickly, I was in doing things because the technology didn't work too well at the beginning. I was doing things to make the technology work. So they moved me into R&D. And what were the applications? At the beginning, you guys were trying to sell the molding and then you know, just basically model shops, right? Uh, yeah. Well, it was nicknamed back then rapid prototyping mm -hmm. because the models were only good for prototyping at best. 
they uh, the stereolithography started with this acrylate based UV resin, and it was very brittle, and it had um, a lot of shrink to it, like seven percent by volume. So the the parts were not very accurate that were coming out, and they took a, a lot of handwork. And uh, so prototyping was the right word for it back then. Uh, from there, I realized that. Uh, the technology was so hard to work that people were starting service bureaus and whoever could make it work was going to be successful in it. And that's when I, I spun <laughs> off and started Solid Concepts. That was also very early. There weren't that many service bureaus at the time. There was like, you know, Materialize and like, there was like a bunch of, like a couple of service bureaus only when you got started, right? Yeah, there was a Materialize in Europe. Um, they may have started around the same time as us. and But in the U.S., there was maybe five or 10 of them. Uh, there was like Plyonetics. And Prototype Express. Let's go back to guys named Frost Prelu or David Flynn, who's still in the industry, mm-hmm. um, and a few others. Uh, mm-hmm. One called Psycon in Southern California. I think there was probably maybe as many as a dozen when we started. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then and before that, one more question about three D systems. Your time there. What was the culture of the company like? Was it very startupy? Was it very corporate? What, what was it like? Because we don't we used to like three D systems being like this super tiny little company, you know. Yeah, it, it was very entrepreneurial. It was very startup-ish. It, it was not like any big corporate thing at all. It was so easy to do things. It was so easy to innovate. You know, they didn't, they weren't putting handcuffs on anybody. It was just do whatever it takes, make this work, launch this company. Yeah. It was a fun okay. time. I was going to ask. <laughs> it yeah, sounds it was, like it was a fun time. <laughs> it was a fun time. It really was. Was it, I'm curious, especially back then, like, how did you lane to someone like, oh, I work at this company. It makes a machine that makes things. <laughs> well, that's that's funny because you would try and explain it. You'd say, you know, um, especially at TSA or passport control, you're coming in. Oh, yeah. Company. Yeah. And they say, well, what do you do? You know, and I'm in the rapid prototyping business. And they say, well, what's that? You try and explain it. They'd look at you like you had two heads. Right. You, uh-huh. you couldn't explain it. You know, the best thing that ever happened to this industry was when someone changed the name to 3D print and people go, ah, so I always use 3D printing. Yeah, that that was interesting because like when we were at Shapeways and we were looking at all the, you know, it was still, that was like much, much later. That was like in 2008 or something. And and that was like much, much later. And then we were looking and it was just like rapid prototyping, free form fabrication, rapid manufacturing, stereolithography. Everybody's using all these different terms. And we found out there was like a, a... there was a journalist who had written like use 3d printing as a general term already in a New York times article. And we found out that our page rank was just much higher for 3d printing than anything else. Cause it's only used by the, 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 the Saks and all the MIT guys. So we just like, we ran with 3d printing cause just cause it made much sense for our marketing strategy. Cause people would Google a 3d printed car and end up with shapeways. And that was just like, you know, that kind of like we consolidated around that term and other people did as well. And, and the journalist kind of adopted it. I think the first guy was a journalist, uh, the first guy that really used 3D printing as a catch-all for all of it was a journalist. And then he's, uh, I, uh, I I'll remember his name while we answer the question. But anyway, so, and why did you manage to jump and start your own, like, Bob Brescia or something? He was like a boing-boing at one point. Anyway, uh, he was the first one I knew that, like, started using it as, like, a general term for everything. But anyway, but, but so why did you decide to start your own business? Because that must have been quite risky back then, right? Uh, yeah, um, I guess I had always wanted to do that. I think it um, kind of uh, has to do with upbringing. Uh, you know, I was brought up in an upper middle class family. I thought I was rich, you know, but I realized uh, that I didn't grow up in a rich family. And uh, and I wanted to have more money than an engineer. 
uh, uh, could make. That was it. I was looking for ways uh, to start my own company. And, but it's kind of hard as an engineer. Um, you can have a good idea. It takes money to develop them. And there was an opportunity here to write some software and, and launch a business at a fairly low cost. So me and a, and a friend, um, Ray Bradford, we, we wrote the first automatic support generator called Bridgeworks. I mean, you almost had to have it to run an SLA machine. Otherwise, you had to um, uh, you had to get on a CAD system. And it was harder to design the supports than it was the part. Right. And so, you know, it, it may sound like a lot, but we charged uh, back then, we charged $5,000 to each of our credit cards for some high-powered computers. And we wrote the software for that. And everybody had to have it. Anyone who bought an SLA bought that software. And it was a unique opportunity to launch a business with almost no money. Uh, but th but then, well, why did you then, like, not stay in the software business? And why did you, you know, because because it, was it just about yeah, no overhead other than like team and stuff like that, no equipment? Why would you leave that? Yes, I know. <laughs> Very high gross margins. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, at the same time, I was so determined to start my own business. I was also working with someone else to start a parts business because I knew I had some. Uh, unique capabilities and would have an advantage in the market there being uh, one of the people that designed the equipment and the process. So I started another business at the same time with uh, somebody called uh, named uh, Skylar Mitchell. Now he was a natural born salesman. So he was just bringing in orders for parts. I was renting time off a machine and building the parts. And then we, we had the opportunity to pick one up uh, on payments only. Uh, from a company called laser fab in southern cal and we grabbed that and we were off to the races both companies took off at the same time both partners looked at me and said joe what are you going to do and i said well let's just put them together and you know thus uh, solid concepts ended up in both software and, and the parts business the parts the parts just did better it just took off mm. and uh, the software became more of a tool for internal use we then uh, wrote solid view which was the first uh, generic CAD viewer. Um, and then all the CAD systems started coming out with their own viewers, but we did it because we needed it internally just to view uh, all the CAD files that were running through there. We had so many people, we were buying so many CAD seats of just so we could look at the CAD files that we wrote that for internal use. And then we spun it off and sold it. What was it like designing software at the time for, Additive, because that was like really weird. You worked with like, it was like a raster called like software, right? Right, the support st structure kind of like generation, right? First of all, it was fun. I always had a, an affection for programming. So when I was in 3D systems, I was programming a lot of stuff anyways. Um, uh, so when we got out, um, uh, it, we had, it, it was something that we were good at. We enjoyed doing. And, and when we looked at generating the supports, we actually... We debated for a long time, do we do it with uh, facets or do we do it with um, a raster based and look at them layer by layer? And we actually kind of went down the path of both a little bit to see how difficult they'd be. We ended up using the STL file and doing all the calculations in um, uh, triangular facets. Okay. And that, that, that was really fast, right? <laughs> so, so you're who we have to blame for that? or like, Yeah, um... I guess so. <laughs> um, 
but it works. <laughs> so. Yeah, it, yeah, it works. How, how, I mean, at the time, we, I feel like we take this for granted, but I mean, you're, you're talking like early 90s, essentially. Like, we're still talking very low computing power in anything compared to today. I guess, how much of a challenge was that in part of all of this, developing that software? Yeah, it, it was a real challenge with that computer power then. Um, you know, though, when I started out on CAD CAM, I started out on a system called Applicon. And it was, uh, it ran four workstations on what was called a DEC PDP uh, 11, uh, 1134. It, it, it was a fraction of the power you have in your hand on your cell phone, just a fraction. They had four seats hooked up to it and you'd push the button and then you'd go get coffee and wait <laughs> to finish anything, right? So to us, this, these, these uh, we started it on PCs and we thought those were pretty powerful, but the amount of data that we were trying to crunch, um, it would just grind to a halt. Like I say, Ray Bradford was a brilliant programmer and he knew how to hash the data in such a way that it would go very fast. You have to, yeah, you have to use tricks like that. I'm, my father was also a programmer at that time period and doing financial database systems. And similar kind of uh, limitations where you just can't calculate fast enough to, to do anything useful. And the, the fun thing about software is, is I just, I see something, I want to try and make it better, make it faster. Mm -hmm. I want to automate it. And, you know, software is one of the best tools to do that. And and then another question, like, when did you, okay, so you said you transitioned into parts because it was working well. What was working then? I mean, was it molds? Was it mold tooling or what was the, what was it, what, what was really working? Yeah, it was prototypes. It was helping people mock up their products. And I think that we moved into silicon molds and cast urethanes and CNC machining before we moved into any other 3D printing products um, because they were very good for prototyping as well. And so that was all prototyping. Um, and then we got into SLS and started to, you know, the parts had a good enough properties that uh, we started selling them as finished parts. Um, okay. And our cast urethanes out of silicon molds kept getting better and better until customers just started using those for finished parts. And we just transitioned gradually, naturally. Right. So just as things happen to get better as time, people yeah, started actually using them for their intended thing. Yeah, we didn't set out to, you know, we're going to pioneer this into production. But at some point we realized that we were, and then we intentionally were. Right. When was that? When did you start to realize that this can be applied directly to production and not just for prototyping? Oh, probably mid nineties, probably about 95 when we got the, SL, the SL, SLS in there. We never, <laughs> never viewed SLA as uh, end use parts, um, <laughs> but prototypes and patterns, you could make a good pattern with it and cast a silicone mold from it. Then you could get production quality materials out of silicone mold. Uh, and then sintering, right. I mean, I think sintering was, uh, I mean, uh, the right choice given what else was out there at the time. Uh, but <laughs> and then and then you could have like you went on a lot. You, well, basically, you got DTM, right? Or you got DTM type machines and that kind of stuff, right? Yes. Yeah. And then, um, uh, yeah. And what parts started working for you at the time then? I, I, I'm having trouble remembering, but which ones were working first? But aerospace adopted it the quickest because they had um, the biggest benefit from 3D printing. They could reduce part numbers, um, reduce the number of tools they have to track and qualify. 
so most of our sales of that was going into aerospace where everything else we'd been doing before that, I think um, it was medical stuff, handheld and roll around devices, medical stuff for the SLA and the Castura things. It, yeah, we, it launched very quickly into aerospace and Boeing um, was a big part of driving it forward into end use parts. And we were the first supplier they brought on to qualify us to do end use parts for them. It must have cost us a million dollars to get qualified and go through that process. <laughs> oh, but it must wow, have cost yeah. them a million as well to do that. <laughs> For what part? Can you say what part or what parts? Or um, what yeah. technology was it? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're yeah. restricted or not? But. Yeah, it was with the SLS technology uh, using the DTM equipment, mm -hmm. which at some point maybe it was bought by 3D Systems by the time we were doing that. Mm -hmm. um, and um, they were. ECS ducts and yeah. environmental control system. So they're all the ones that had these really, really unique curvatures right. you know, to connect ducting throughout the plane. Uh, just a great choice, a great choice to start. And, you know, when you're pioneering uh, this technology forward, that's what it comes down to, I think, is it's each application, it's an application at a time. And sometimes it's almost one part at a time. I love the ECS ducting application because there was there's, there's like literally tens of thousands of these parts flying on, on many Boeing commercial aircraft, right? Not a lot of people know this because Boeing was like really publicity shy for a long time. So I'm really happy you can talk about this. <laughs> um, and and uh, so I'm really happy about this because it's one of the key applications because I still don't understand. Like, first off, you qualified these DTM uh, machines that you were able to use for 20 years or something. So that was a good decision. <laughs> Uh, compared to all the other equipment that was out there. I mean, and uh, I think, but what was that, you know, that qualification was, yeah, you're right. It's painful, right? But what was it like? Did they do it kind of curiosity? You know, these things were really complicated. They had to make them out of five, six different other components. Was it just the, the manufacturing cost? What was the really the driver behind this? Probably, you know, all the additive, uh, all the 3D printing benefits. Um, uh, you don't need any tooling. These were rotomolded. You don't have the lead time that goes with tooling and the storage that goes with it. Uh, then you could start to, when you're ever using tooling, you, you, what you can do uh, is based on the technology and they could start combining part numbers, which when in aerospace, that's invaluable cost-wise. Right. Every right. single part number costs them so much. So the savings there were the, one of the easiest places to justify the technology. And selecting the DTM equipment and, and pushing this forward is, is all on Boeing. Uh, they did that. We just got lucky to hook up with them first. And then all the other aerospace companies followed suit. And I don't know, you probably can't say it yet, but you got to be getting close. I mean, they're on commercial, they started with military aircraft, then went on to commercial. And I think that probably getting close to any commercial aircraft you're on has a 3D print part on it. I, I like the ducks because, yeah, like it was a fairly kind of, you know, it's super complex. Complex. The plane wouldn't go down if it wouldn't work, but still, it had right. to like be yeah. flame retardant, and it had to be, um, you know, it had to have a yeah. really interesting property stuff. These are made out of Altem, right? Uh, yeah, no, the first ones were made of SLS, and so they oh. went with military first because you don't uh, need fire retardant. Yeah, for them, right. yeah, who cares? They can get out of the airplane, right? And then <laughs> Right. It's only well, you know, a couple billion dollars there. <laughs> sure, they just they hit the ejector button and right. uh, let no. the thing burn up. Uh, there's yeah. just one one or two guys in it to get out. And we'll never know if it was the 3D part. <laughs> so. yeah. 
Well, when they when they went commercial, it had to become fire retardant, but it was still um, it was still nylon. They just added fire retardants to it, fire suppressants. And then and then for the commercial aviation, that's that's Ultem, right? And that was also kind of well, well, the recycling rate on that isn't great, let's say. Um, so that was also really complicated, also cost intensive incentive to do that, right? Yeah, the Ultem we we championed that as well because once we were part of Stratasys, uh, then. Uh, uh, you know, the Ultem was uh, uh, readily available to us, and uh, we championed that with Airbus first, and I don't know who else is doing it now. They're expensive. It's expensive to do. That's a million dollars to a new process, a new technology, a new company, new supplier, all qualified by an aerospace company like that. And is that, like, you say kind of like you were lucky we hooked up at Boeing. I, I don't really believe in random like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there must have been something, were there something, did you, were you just the only people willing to invest that money at the time? Or were you the only people, like, wealthy enough at the time in the sense, as a business? Or, you know, why did they find you? Or how did they proceed to select you? Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I've got a saying, I'd rather be lucky than good. <laughs> yeah, totally. Everyone. I think that. Yeah, I, I know. That, yeah. I think we all know that means that you know it, it, somehow the people that are good get lucky the most. But we were positioned the best. Um, we were the uh, we were the biggest supplier of SLS parts at the time. I think we had the best quality, the best quality systems in place. They looked at everybody in the industry, and it was it was a clear choice that if, uh, if they were going to invest the time and money, that we were the best choice. And you also, at that time, were the first to pioneer kind of using peak, right? Also on aerospace and in, 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 or no, also in, in, in aviation, right? I think we we're probably the first service bureau to buy the EOS high temp machine. Um, <laughs> That's to, always fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 7,000, 8,000 or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that in retail, it was like 1.4 million. I think we yeah. paid about 800,000 for it. And uh, I got to tell you, we knew it wasn't going to work. Yeah, mm. we were just everyone thinking, else did as well. By the way, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. right? But yeah, people thought. You know, I think people probably thought that you know we've lost our minds. But uh, we were big enough at the time, and we had a big enough marketing uh, budget that uh, I just viewed it as this is worth its weight in gold in marketing to be the first mm. in anything. We got so right. much press out of that. Okay. okay. And, oh. and did you, did you guys had the first machine yet. and everything, and they just like ate it up or press wise. Yeah, what but it's it? also peak is special, right? So you get a special kind of people coming to you saying, "Hey, wait, you can do this." Absolutely, and then and um, maybe they end up in a different product, you know, when you're done talking. Right, to but them. they came to you because of the article talking about how you guys had this machine. Yeah, yeah, I get what you're sure. And just getting it to your name is around more. And right. based out of that too, as well. Um, but you know, it just had such good high temperature capabilities and things like that. I know we got some good parts out of it, but I don't know if we ever made any money out of it. <laughs> yeah, I, would, uh, I would be surprised. <laughs> um, and then, uh, but then also, but I think the interesting thing is that we're in parallel. You were able to do Boeing, and then I don't know what you can say about this also, but you were also able to work for Northrop Grumman and other suppliers again, right? So you're able to go through this process several times. And there's also, you're taking, it's a million dollars, yeah, but it's also like super painful as well for the organization, right? Uh, yeah. You know, some of the aerospace companies are fine with, oh, you're doing business with Boeing, we're okay with that. It's like uh, Lockheed Martin was okay with it. But, you know, there are some uh, tough uh, 
uh, rivalries in the business. Uh, our closeness to Boeing is like Northrop didn't want to do anything with us. Mm. Period. They knew we were the best in the industry at it, uh, but our but they didn't they didn't want to use us just because of how close we were with Boeing. So, mm. but we did have some ins in prototyping and stuff like that in other areas, but we could never get into doing uh, production parts for them. And another thing is, I think you guys pioneered, well, the first thing is, in the same time, you were doing SLS and FDM with Altem and then SLS with Peak, right? Like, uh, simultaneously, you were like the only people doing both high temperature materials, I think, at one point uh, for aviation. And, you know, did you, were you able to kind of like optimize both processes? We had to be able, right? But, But how do you see these two processes like live next to each other for like an aviation application? You know, it's really up to the customer. I mean, if they want Altem, uh, you give them the best all ten part you can, and if they and it, if it's good enough for them, and if they want uh, peak or peck, that then it's uh, uh, you've got to go with the selective laser centering process, and um, and hopefully and you build the best part you can out of that, and hopefully it's good enough for them. Otherwise, they don't buy it. You know, we had so many technologies uh, under one roof, and you, you're just um, you're just optimizing every single one of them to do the best that it can, kind of in a in a general sense, so the, the better you make it run, the more applications that it will fit. And then you get into applications like the, uh, uh, the aerospace parts. And then you, you, then you have to dive into that application and optimize things just for that. And sometimes innovate just for that application. Um, you know, yeah. the, the pioneering this into the future, and I think we're gonna see you know, in 50 or 100 years from now, this is a clear inflection point for 3D printing. But up close, it's really championing one part or one application at a time. And everyone takes some innovation, adaptation. Um, and that it's just been a long road of that. But uh, then up I- close, intimate with each part mm-hmm. and adapting things to make them work. Yeah, but you guys are running like Z Corp. <laughs> <laughs> Which like it's one of these things where you're like optimizing all the technology, having a lot of technology in house. That sounds like a really solid thing, but it's like it's so expensive to have an engineer trying to optimize Z Corp while you're trying to get qualified for an aerospace part for Boeing, where you're also making drone parts and you're also trying to work with like the space community. You know what I mean? So it could have easily, you know, I could have just imagine you guys running out of money every single time just to to be able to do so many things at the same time. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, I'm pretty good with the 80, 20 rule and, uh, mm. and I'm pretty practical. I'm a pragmatist. We knew when not to spend too much money on something and, and when to go all in, um, like Z Corp. We didn't go all in with that. I'm trying to remember <laughs> how, how we ended up with a Z Corp machine, like one of them. I uh-huh. think it was, uh, Raytheon in Tucson, Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, they had their own in-house, uh, uh, called Fusion uh, 3D printing department. And they wanted to expand. They were so popular inside Raytheon. And so when they went to ask for a bigger budget, that's they unfortunately, they raised their visibility in the company. And they said, oh, no, that's not our core business. And we need the floor space back. And they decided to close it. But what they did was they, they went out and they and people bid on it. We bid the contract to take it over. And it had a Z Corp machine, and I think that's the only. So you just kind of inherited it. We as ever a result. I, I love the idea. I love the idea of a bunch of Raytheon engineers sitting around a Z Corp machine, going, 
What is this? <laughs> yeah, and I don't think we ever put it on our website. You know, we auto-quoted anything that was a main product line. I don't think we ever put that on our website. We might have. But yeah. I, I don't even think we broke it out into its own product. Uh, you know, each product, we track the profitability of them. That never got broken out. I don't know right. what it got pushed into, but never got okay. broken out. Okay, and then and then another thing I think, uh, which is also one of these like at one point the biggest revolution I think to sustain the every always talks about cast urethane prototypes, cast urethane casting, you know, molds maybe, and then later on we go to the functional parts with SLS, and then kind of magically we end up with metal printing and and, and today and what we kind of skip over, especially I think in the United States, is this whole this drone revolution and this you know this air vehicle unmanned aerial systems resolution, which I think really sustained three D printing. And you guys, I think together with Paramount, I think you guys were basically the, the biggest in doing this whole drone thing, right? Oh, yeah. We were doing tons of parts for unmanned vehicles, um, land-based, air-based. But there was such a um, a bubble in that industry. And I can't remember what it was, but like the DOD or some, whoever's handing out all the contracts just decided to consolidate it. And and it, it just... Um, it, it almost killed it, you know. It, all of a sudden, we were just dealing with three or four uh, uh, customers after that. Uh, but for a while, there it was an explosion, just all sorts of companies springing up just to do unmanned vehicles. What, what time period was this? Oh, gosh. It was like the like 90s. It was like the 90s, 90s to the mid, ni- late 90s to the mid, uh, to the mid to beginning 2000s. The mid Yeah, that's what I would have okay. said, late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, okay. All right. I can see that. Yeah. Everybody needed like there were like four drone guys parts. bidding on a contract to make fifteen drones for the Coast Guard, right? And then they needed another one for like another thirty drones for the uh, for the Air Force or whatever, right? And there was a man packable one for the you know it was like a fashion thing. And then also everybody wanted drones. And then they were like, well, there were no regulations, so they were like, well, we could fly the prototype. <laughs> That's essentially what happened. According, well, at least like the simplified version. Well, I, and in a military scenario, I can see why you would fly a prototype yeah. if it's an information drone. You're just trying to gather information. If it gets shot down, oh well, you know, <laughs> like it, it was just a bunch of printed parts from the perspective of the military. Yeah, I, I think you remember this uh, perfectly, Joris, and and I remember it the same way from being a supplier to these guys. And I can't remember which one of them it was that uh, one of our guys saw. It was a Senate hearing, and they were showing some video of a drone uh, going into a cave with a camera and then blowing up in there. And it was we had made all the parts for it, and but <laughs> it was just crazy. That stuff was going on everywhere. Oh, I think also that was interesting that people didn't realize what the parts were that people were making. Like there were nacelles, there were control surfaces. We're talking tanks, right? And and well, like fuel tanks, fuel bladders, yeah. assemblies. It was like the the like we all the world kind of got knows like when GA said this is a bracket, you know. And it was a metal bracket for a commercial aircraft. But the, the plethora of parts on these drones was just insane, right? Yeah, there were lots of them. And I, I think, I can't remember, I think they were all ITAR as well, which which limited a little bit of the competition in that area. Not everybody was ITAR certified back then. Yeah, I think I think you guys, basically Paramount, you and, oh, I think uh, uh, Harvest, maybe, they picked up most of that, I think, or nearly all of that business. <laughs> Yeah, I don't remember Harvest, uh, but I do remember bidding against Paramount on lots of that stuff. Yeah, Paramount was huge. And th- did you, and and did you like, 
then realize how big it was going to get? Because like, at, at that time, you guys were a pretty big company, right? You guys were like a couple hundred people or something like that. You had a couple of locations, you know? Did you think the 3D printing revolution was coming or did that never occur to you? <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember. I've always just, you know, I think business-wise, I've always been an opportunist. I just keep looking for the next opportunity and just keep following the money, follow the business. And I'm not sure I, I thought that far out, but I think we all can tell now where it's going to go. This is, you know, it's, it's just going to, people are going to keep figuring out how to make new technologies and adapt these technologies and, and make new stuff with it. But I'm not sure I knew. Well, do, I, I do, must say, do you have a hope for the future, like in 50 or 100 years, kind of thing, of what you think a 3D printer would look like? I mean, that's a massive time spent. So I mean, it's kind of out there. But yeah, I just wanted to contribute as much to society as I can, and so that's fair. Um, make make parts more effectively, so that people can innovate more effectively, um, and do it in a sustainable way. So there's contributing to um, to mankind over the over the long term. How do you think 3D printing is going to contribute to, to society as a whole then going forward? Sustainability wise, um, you know, just the ability to, at some point we're going to have machines all over the world and you'll just, you'll print the part when and where you want it. So you won't have all the shipping costs uh, right. or you'll have minimal and um, you won't have all the carbon footprint and the waste that goes with generating tooling. Um, you have less inventory, so you have smaller plants. And I think the technologies as we go too, that, you know, um, the way they operate sometimes doesn't seem so efficient, but they, they just slowly keep getting better and better so that the technology would be efficient in the whole concept of how you can print parts anywhere, where, and when you want, um, is going to make a big difference. And so why on earth would you, okay. So, okay. At one point, you, you sold solid concepts, right? Made some money, I'm guessing. And then you ended up working for Stratasys. Well, first off, that was a, a really go, go, go period. Now, all of a sudden, you're part of this huge company trying to, like, turn Red Eye into Stratasys Direct, essentially. What was that like? Was that a fun experience for you to be all of a sudden in this behemoth? It was kind of brutal. It was a tough period just because it was just so much work. Um, mm -hmm. uh, all of a sudden, uh, you know, just getting ready to sell your company was a lot of work. And then once you sell it, and um, they gave me two other companies or four companies to merge together. I had to merge Solid Concepts, Red Eye, Heart, <laughs> and Stratasys. Right? And they gave me one guy, one consultant to help. That was all the help. <laughs> uh, so it was a pretty tough three years. And I think it kind of wore me out. And my contract was up. And I, I just said, I'm going to take a break. So, okay. uh, it, And I waited till the right time. It was a good time where they wanted to move things around and we could... Uh, um, maneuver things so that it, 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 I don't think that it was a big loss when I left. Um, yeah, but I think it's good to choose for yourself at this point, right? To choose for yourself at this point and kind of relax and try to kind of like not work yourself, you know, to death essentially. Yeah, I needed to do that. But I also needed to dabble in the industry and that's how I got involved with 3D Ventures. I, people were calling me to get, you know, investment money. And so I invested in a few companies and then I ran into Wally Lombaum and, and Hugh Evans. I don't know if you know those guys. Yeah. Um, and so we started investing together and then so we just formed 3D Ventures. And we've done 
at least 15 investments together uh, at this point. And we invested heavily in uh, Evolve in, in all the things we were looking at. Um, and normally they're me too pluses or they're, you know, um, you know, enhancements to materials. They're not like a new material or something. And when we saw it and you know, we realized, hey, this, this one's completely different. It does stuff that nothing else can do. And so we went all in on that. And um, uh, all in for 3D Ventures means not just money. You get, you know, all the expertise and support that goes with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so 3D was that was that fun? I mean, it seems like a lot of fun to do this investment. I, I love, I scout companies for people and I love doing that. This just seems like a lot of money. And a lot of a lot of money that can be made, and also at the same time, like a lot of fun as well. Yeah, it is. I I really enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> I'm not doing so much of it anymore. Well, because uh, I'm CEO of of Evolve now, uh, but I really enjoyed it. And you just kind of set your own hours, um, and uh, you still get to dabble. You get to talk to people. You get to help people. You know, I I formed an LLC to for con- to collect consulting fees for it. I never charged anybody once. The consulting company had no income. So, I mean, you're talking to startups. They don't have money. I'm going to charge them, you know, and I just, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed every minute of it. And I still do just a little bit of it, but not so much. I really like other guys, the things you guys uh, put in on cost uh, surgical, I really like. And coal plant as well. Coal plant has a lot of potential, I think, in the and the human collagen from tobacco plants, if only from a marketing perspective. And uh, Azul is nice, I think, as well. And that's that's good. But then, okay, so this sounds really cool, right? You're just investing in companies. You talk to these young whippersnapper entrepreneurs, and you tell them, I did this 15 years ago. This sounds perfect, right? Why would you then <laughs> go, go and run, uh, like, be the CEO of Evolve? Why not well, just, like, kick back on a boat? You know, this sounds great. Build a money bin, dive yeah. in. <laughs> well, I, I'll be honest. I was kind of talked into it. Um, so, uh, you know, our group um, raised the last 30 million, the whole thing. And uh, we're all in. So, you know, they're, they're working on the next raise. And, uh, you know, with the amount of money we're putting in there, it's like, you know, uh, we, we could do better with the very seasoned CEO in there. And uh, mm. they, they talked me into it. And it's like, well, I'm having fun at that, too. I was really enjoying the kind of part-time job of the investment stuff. But... Um, I agree with them. If I'm going to do one more thing in this industry, um, this technology is the only thing I saw that would bring me out of retirement. Okay. Oh, okay. This is interesting. Yeah, okay. That's encouraging. I was impressed with Evolve because of the, well, the surface, the definition of the part, if you will, the, the smoothness of surface texture, the, the quality, and the potential for, for, for just making a lot of something, right? Uh, I was a bit worried about this, the height, Z height, you know, and this toner stuff just seemed like it could be kind of expensive when compared to other stuff. But, you know, what did you see in it then? You know, I see, I'm always just looking for a moment of brilliance in a new technology. And so I saw a technology that can do very high fidelity parts, uh, very ultra high resolution. And, and it can do it out of amorphous thermoplastics. Now, the only other technologies out there that can really do the amorphous thermoplastics is, uh, you know, the, the FFF. Um, so, you know, it's moving a nozzle around and no matter how fast you speed that up, it's, it's not, it, it's not going to be high resolution because it's too slow. You have to put down a reasonable line width, um, to make it go fast enough. Um, so there's, there's nothing out there like this. And, um, 
So this amorphous thermoplastics include the, the most popular engineering materials that people want to design with. You know, ABS, number one, polycarbonate, um, TPU, um, there's, there's amorphous nylons as well. They can't do it and they can't do parts like this. So once you see an ABS part in your hand with the kind of resolution, and it's really accurate as well. Um, so great surface finish, great accuracy, great. It's fast as well. Right. There's nothing. Like that's the whole point is that it can do whatever X number of parts in one, one go. Yeah. And it's like a 300 by 600 millimeter um, X, XY. Right. And this adds about two inches now for that, but it'll be four inches very soon. And then we'll, we'll keep, we'll keep making it bigger. Keeping, yeah. Keep yeah. Better. The key thing with the new technology is right. Stay in a zone where it operates well. Right. Until you're ready and you've got it all proven out, then, uh, you know, then announce that and then, then add it. It, uh, I think it can be tempting to try and go too fast. And so what are you, what are you focusing on? I mean, you, you've sold some, uh, some of these machines to, uh, well, public, I think, I think discloses like, I think Stanley Black and Decker or Lego or something. I don't know what's actually public, but like there's a few placements, but what are you really targeting? What are the applications or the industries or the verticals or something that you're really targeting this technology? Well, when you look at all these materials um, that we can do and the resolution of it, it's pretty broad. As a matter of fact, the investors and um, uh, board members of Evolve, I'm not sure that I can say all of them because they, uh, they consider this to be important enough that many of them we're not allowed to say who they are. They want to keep their involvement mm. uh, secret because uh, they consider it a, a competitive advantage. But I mean, it, it's marquee names across multiple industries. Um, you know, so I mean, anywhere from uh, toys to medical to uh, Stanley Black and Decker is that one is public, I think, and um, others. So it's like we've uh, got three machines now that have been sold. Uh, two are at a company, the same company, can't uh, say who they are. The other one is Fathom, right? And uh, the, the machine for Fathom, we're, we're making parts for them now because their tech center for it's not ready, but we're making parts for them and it should be installed in December. Can, can you disclose how much one of these machines goes for right now or is that still quiet? Um, <laughs> well, it's in the low seven figures when you add up okay. everything you need around it. But when you look at what it can do and what it can do so fast, you know, mm -hmm. we, we tend to compare it and look at it on a, uh, how does a, to the end owner, what's the total cost of ownership? And it's similar right now to other, uh, 3d printing technologies that are used for production parts. It's similar with a lot of potential, a lot of potential to get, uh, faster and uh, lower cost. Is it like, so the Fathom was interesting because all these guys were, you are being secretive about who has the machines, um, that, that you are being secretive about like, like who's deploying this technology, who's interested and Fathom all of a sudden, well, they would ostensibly, I could upload a part at one point and they'd make it for me. I could do a short production run or something like that. Is that really kind of like your coming out kind of thing? As you guys are saying to everyone, like, look here, here, try us out. Is that the idea behind the Fathom, uh, engagement? Yes. Yeah, it, it's real important that, you know, to get market validation, they have to be able to get parts somewhere, right? And, you know, setting up an effective, because I did that my, my whole career, setting up a, a, an effective, efficient, uh, uh, and high-quality manufacturing shop, that's almost a business in its own. 
right? So we want, we'd rather launch the business and have people be able to get parts from someone who that's, they've got all that infrastructure and expertise in place already. And so that's, uh, um, Fathom's got all that. I, I think they're a great choice for us to help launch the technology. And and what kind of production runs are you targeting? Because traditionally we've seen like either you know unique parts or short run hundred thousand five thousand, but with evolved the economics are a bit different, right? Well, they're they're similar to three um, D printing economics. You know, if you draw the uh, the cost per part graph, you know, if injection molding it starts real high with the tool. And then as you amortize in the parts, it comes down and it gets uh, very low for very large, when you get into large volumes. And um, in 3D printing, it's just like a straight line, right? The second part's the same price as the first and the third and the fourth, you know. Um, you know, getting the part qualified does have a little bit of cost, but, you know, it's, it's close to a straight line. Um, so it's really, you know, what's the cost per part? And this is going to start out in typical 3D printing quantities, which are going to be maybe, um, you know, 500 parts to 10, 15,000, depending on the geometry and how cost effective it is. And, um, but we've got a roadmap to bring the cost down quickly over the next 18 months. And so that'll keep, that'll keep expanding. And and in that sense, like, are we looking at like, because the, the, the exciting thing is if we look at the, the Z height is still minimal, but then still we can really look, there's a lot of housing type components that we could make for that amount of money. So are we like looking at stuff that's like, you know, for example, viable for like, uh, you know, so let's, let's take the Stanley Black and Decker example, because they're, they're an investor and they're public as a, as a customer, right? You know, are we looking at like, I could buy a hand drill at one point with this component on it, or are we looking at kind of like, you know, something really specialized that's going to be internal or a tooling element? Or are you really hoping for this? Like, you know, we go to the store and we get a hand drill or a specialized, I don't know, a specialized tool or something that they have a short production run for or only for HVAC mechanics or something like that. Is that, is that where we're, we're targeting with this? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, each, each technology, when you look at it, they've got their sweet spots. And uh, so right now, we still have quite a bit of supports on it. But we're going to be able to reduce those probably by about 90% through software and, and other methods. And so right now, I wouldn't say building like the handle of a, a hand tool for uh, Stanley Black & Decker, it's going to be cost effective right now. But um, if, uh, if you have, let's say, some parts that nest well uh, in, the, in the two to four inch range, that like something that nests really well are some sprinkler heads. And you, you can just pack the platform with them with minimal supports around them, then it's got a killer cost break on that. Mm -hmm. And so the like, polymer nozzles would be a really nice one as well, then. Yes. And and, and I've, I really like membranes. Could you make membranes with it or not? Because I really like uh, like making membranes or filtration equipment with 3D printing. It's not really been done. And it seems like with XY and the toner, maybe that you'd get really good definition on those as well. I don't know, George. I've never thought of that. Okay, you should try it. Yeah, <laughs> you should probably. That'll take, probably. I'm guessing that'll work. You can you can hire me retroactively. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll have to put your name on the patent. Uh, right. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm writing that down right now. No, seriously, I think it. I think it would work. I don't know a lot about the process, but I have spent some time with it. But I think it would work. Like membranes and filtration is one of the things I'm like really excited about uh, about at this point. 
uh, especially if we could do certain materials that you guys could do better than others. But, um, and then uh, to me, like, what's always like a thing in this is like, you know, with these kind of machines, new technologies, are you going to target these companies? Are you going to help them? Are you just going to drop the machine? How are you going to get them started quicker? Because that to me is the biggest problem. If I see, if you buy a metal machine, you know that you've, you had metal machines of solid concept. It takes you months to get to know that thing and to get it to work properly. I mean, and, and you know, how are you helping your customers accelerate their adoption? Yeah, we've spent a lot of time thinking about that. And for a startup too, technology, if it's got a big price tag, um, it, it warrants a lot of thought. Um, how, to, how to minimize the risk for the customer and, get the, um, and help them launch the technology. And so it takes multiple uh, strategies. And one is uh, Fathom, for instance, to have a full-blown contract manufacturer in place to do that. And then in-house, we've got a parts program for the stuff that's smaller and the, um, uh, we're proving it out for customers. And then once it's proven out, we'll spin them off to Fathom. Uh, so we've got a parts program in-house. Uh, we've got a whole staff of applications engineers to uh, help work with each customer. And then we have uh, joint uh, development agreements uh, for a number of uh strategic companies, as well as uh, material development agreements or developing materials just for them. Yeah, that sounds like it could be really exciting. And what, what is your goal for the business? Where do you hope to kind of, because at one point, you know, where do you hope to leave this or where do you hope to kind of bring it to the next level? What, what, what do you hope to achieve? For me, it's like championing everything else in 3D printing. It's going to be one material, one application at a time. And, um, but in the long run, I would see these because they can print parts that rival injection molding, surface finish quality, actually better accuracy uh, because they don't have the kind of shrink and sink that you see in uh, injection molding. Uh, material properties. So eventually this technology may be one of the best ones to, to end up in, enabling worldwide distributed manufacturing or uh, worldwide production. Um, where you can print the parts where you want them and when you want them. The other exciting thing about it is um, the fact that there's five print engines on here and we're only using two right now, but you can use each one for a different material. So you can start to print parts, not just that are different colors, but different materials. You could combine a rigid material with an elastomeric material. And you could do that maybe just to print gaskets you know, integral gaskets on the inside or maybe a soft touch uh, outer, you know, impact overmold. Uh, or, and this is the type of thing that it, it will take the world many decades to figure out even what to do with it, but you could vary those materials right down to the voxel level of every single layer. And I don't know what you can do with that yet. I know it. Make new materials. <laughs> you can do yeah. some really cool stuff. <laughs> yeah, you know, they make it'd be a combination of materials we know, right? But when you combine them like that, yeah, you don't you know can create do, properties yeah. that you know, and yeah. variable properties throughout the part. Do you think it's also conceivable to integrate like a a, a, a chip setter system into it as well, or something, so that you can layer and do integrated circuits at the same time as part of this process? Because then, then you're talking about literally making like, you know, an iPhone type of thing. I mean, that's obviously hugely complicated, but making something like that eventually where it just fits out of the machine. 
um, when all the design was done in 3D. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we've already thought about and, and some of the, our, our uh, prospect customers are talking about putting tr uh, uh, electronic traces in the material, in right. the parts. Yeah. Um, and um, and wanting to insert, you know, stop the thing and insert things while it's building. Like, of course, every 3D printer gets asked that question. Can you stop it and insert things? You right. <laughs> and, uh, yes. Uh, you can. Some technologies won't do that so well, you know, because the thermal right. characteristics right. disrupt the damage. But uh, the, it, it's something this one would do readily. That's cool. Yeah, so I, I love this multi-material stuff, especially like multi-material yeah. complexity stuff that that maybe like I like the seals and gaskets and and, and enclosing electronics. I think that's that's really exciting. But I think you know you're right. You're like one material, one part. There's going to be somebody who comes to you with something super specific that I think we we don't really conceive of at the moment that will really make this. You know, it was like uh, watching uh, uh, 3D printing develop. You know, you, you watch people at first; they're just comparing it against uh, the price of tooling, and I don't need a tool. And next, they start thinking about, oh, wait a minute, I can combine part numbers. And next, it's like, wait, I can design geometries I never even thought of before. And when we tell them you can mix these materials at any level, the voxel level, I don't know what's going to happen or how long it'll take them to figure out what to do with that. No, exactly. I think it's difficult. We never know what works for them and what they need. And, and, and you know, and especially with these kind of gradient parts and multi-material I think it's going to be really difficult for people to to really figure out how to design for it. Like first, how do you design for it? Remember Polyjet with the meshes? We had to make like three different meshes and stuff. And then also just how to think for it, you know, how to really, you know, kind of come up with ideas for it, you know? Yeah. This is going to be one of those. People are going to have to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, definitely. definitely. Hey, Joe, it was so, so great having you here today. It was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I had a good time. And, and thank you for being here again, Max. Always. This was fascinating. And thank you for listening. My name is Joris Peels, and I was here with Joel Elson and Maxwell Vogue on the 3D Pod. Have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com. underscore